You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello, and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today, I'm going to talk about liver and its function, because I would really like to break down liver failure, but I think really to understand liver failure and then subsequently liver cirrhosis, you really have to understand the basic pathophysiology of the liver and more specifically, what the vasculature is doing. Now, if you close your eyes for just a second and you sit there and you think, in the abdominal cavity where the liver sits, you have your inferior vena cava, which is the venous return from the body back up to the heart, and you have your descending or your abdominal aorta, which is the oxygenated arterial blood that is coming from the heart and going down south to the lower extremities to perfuse all of those cells. Now, when you think about those two huge highways of vasculature, on both of them, right where your liver is located, if we talk about the inferior vena cava, which is, again, venous return, you have hepatic veins that come out of the liver and connect to the inferior vena cava and return it back to the heart. Similarly, with that descending aorta or the abdominal aorta, however you decide to refer to it, Off of that, you have your right and your left hepatic arteries. So there's just vessels that come off of both the aorta and the inferior vena cava and go into the liver. And that's how it's actually perfused, right? We have oxygenated blood coming from the abdominal aorta, branching off into right and left hepatic arteries, feeding the liver. And then we've got hepatic veins that take that used blood and return it to the inferior vena cava and it goes back to the heart. Now, there's one huge other kind of vein that we have to talk about, and that's the portal vein. And if you sit there and you think about what the portal vein is doing, it is also blood going to the liver, but it's blood going to the liver that is originating from the pancreas, the stomach, the spleen. So if you look at the vasculature of a body and you see all of the blood vessels that are attached to the stomach on the outside, when we eat and we consume food and it drops down into the stomach with that stomach acid and it starts to get broken down, the blood from there will take some of those nutrients, right? And it takes it through the portal vein to the liver to be filtered. That's the first past effect phenomenon. You have to understand what that vascular system does because when we start to break down what the liver is responsible for, these vessels, whether it's the inferior vena cava with the hepatic veins returning blood back to the heart or the abdominal aorta with the hepatic arteries feeding the liver or the portal vein, which is the transport path of blood from the stomach, for example, going to the liver for filtration, This, these all directly correlate and affect what the liver is actually doing. And that brings us into what does the liver actually do? And this is a quick review. This is nitty gritty, right? The liver produces, it detoxifies, it stores, and it metabolizes. And the way that I like to remember that is PDSM, PDSM of the liver. Okay. When we think about what it produces, it gets broken down into the ABCs. So the liver produces albumin, and albumin attracts water, it drugs, and it binds with calcium. Albumin is this massive molecule. It's this massive molecule that works with water, drugs, and calcium. The B of the ABC is bile. And what you really should do, right, because the liver's producing the ABCs, it's producing It's helping to produce bile. And think of it like a bus, because it's transporting bilirubin and cholesterol, 
And so it transports bilirubin, which is hemoglobin, which goes to the spleen and converts it to bilirubin back to the liver and it gets converted into bile. And then the bile transports the bilirubin and the cholesterol when the liver makes bile. And it's secreted into the bile ducts and the gallbladder. The third thing that the liver is helping to produce is coagulation factors, specifically fibrinogen and prothrombin. So what does that mean to coagulate? That's blood clotting. And so when the liver produces those coagulation factors, it helps to make the blood clot and decreases coagulation time. And without these, people will bleed a lot more. So when we're talking about what the liver is producing, and we are referencing specifically coagulation factors, if we ask how labs look for someone who has, say, liver cirrhosis, just remember that the liver is producing the ABCs. Albumin is going to be low because it's not helping to produce it. Bilirubin is going to be high, right? Because they have to walk, which is why people look yellow. They have to walk because the bile bus is not being produced. And because the bile bus isn't being produced, the bilirubin can't be gotten rid of. And because the bilirubin can't be gotten rid of, because there's no bus for it to take to for excretion, the bilirubin is walking, which is also then increasing in level. It's a weird way to think about it. And cholesterol will be high and coagulation will be off, causing people to bleed more and more and more. So the what the liver does, if we think about PDSM producing, it produces albumin, bile, and coagulation factors. Now the D, the detoxifying, the liver works to detoxify alcohol and drugs, right? It's got these Kumfer cells inside of it, which are act as like trashman cells, and they are detoxifying everything going into blood into the bloodstream to make sure that it's safe. And that's where this first pack phenomenon comes into effect. It's like customs when you're flying internationally. So when we eat and consume things, and it drops into the stomach, and it gets, starts to get broken down and absorbed by the blood vessels that are integrated within that stomach, that blood travels then through the portal vein into the liver to be detoxified, like going through customs. The other big thing it does is the S. It stores things. And it's got two big kind of storage components that you should you should remember. The first thing is glycogen. And glycogen is like your savings account with a wall of glucose for a rainy day fund. And so when you think about it, your liver is storing it's taking glucose and it's storing it as glycogen. So when, for example, you're running a marathon, right, and you hit that wall, your liver starts to withdraw its savings account. And that's the wall of glucose for that rainy day fund so that the body has the additional glucose it needs in order to work correctly. The other thing that it stores are going to be vitamins, okay? B12, A, C, E, D, K, iron. It's storing all sorts of vitamins inside the liver. And then the last thing when we think about PDSM is that it metabolizes. So the liver helps and is responsible for converting and breaking things down for the body to use as energy. For example, think about glucose. It converts extra glucose and it stores it as glycogen. It converts glycogen to glucose when we need it. And ammonia right? Ammonia is a byproduct of protein metabolism. The liver takes that, converts it to urea, which is then excreted by the kidneys. So from a basic standpoint of what the liver does, we're talking about PDSM. So it's producing, it's detoxifying, it's storing, and it's metabolizing. It's producing albumin, 
bile, and coagulation factors. If someone has liver failure or for whatever reason the liver is not working correctly, it is not going to produce or help make any of those things. So your albumin will be low when you're looking at labs. Your coagulation factors are going to be off. These people will bleed more because we are not making the fibrinogen and the prothrombin that is necessary to stop ourselves from bleeding. We are not going to detoxify drugs or alcohol as we eat them. Via the kumfer cells that are the trashmen and that are making sure everything is safe before it hits our bloodstream. First pass phenomenon, right? Like flying through customs, it's storing glycogen. It takes that glucose, converts it to glycogen and puts it in the savings account for that rainy day. It's storing vitamins. It's metabolizing things for us. So when we understand the basic premise of what that liver is actually doing and in addition to that, the vasculature that is both feeding the liver arterial blood through the hepatic arteries and removing that blood through the hepatic veins, then we've got that portal vein. And that portal vein is also integrated throughout the liver, but it's blood coming from the stomach, the spleen, the pancreas. And so liver failure in and of itself is directly correlated to an issue with these things. Thinking about cirrhosis, right? Cirrhosis is just where the liver disease, the cells become so severely damaged that they're basically replaced by fibrous tissue, which is scarring, like scarrosis, right? Liver cirrhosis is just scarrosis because the cells have been damaged so much that they are now scarred over. And cirrhosis is the end stage of liver disease, and it's often characterized by extensive destruction of those liver cells, okay? There's a lot of reasons why people end up in cirrhosis, and I think there is a an assumption that we always correlate alcohol consumption or ETOH consumption with liver cirrhosis. That is just one of many reasons why people end up with a cirrhotic or a scarred over liver. I mean, alcohol is very detrimental to all of our cells just in baseline. I mean, it's even detrimental to our brain, honestly. You drink too much, you get stuporous, you start to stumble, you start to fumble. People do really dumb things when they've consumed way too much alcohol. But that's just one of the many reasons why the liver becomes cirrhotic. And we have a really bad, I think, tendency to say, well, if you've got liver cirrhosis, you must be an alcoholic or must have been an alcoholic previous. When in fact, that's just one of many reasons. It can also be caused by viral infections like hepatitis C or hepatitis B. It can also be the result of some sort of autoimmune problem or a bile duct problem, or for whatever reason, they have increased fat collection in the liver, like through a larger body habitus or obesity or increased diabetes. So patients who are cirrhotic, but who have no obvious complications, right? We consider them to have a, co a compensated cirrhosis versus those who have one or more complications of their liver disease. They then would be classified as having decompensated cirrhosis. And major complications of cirrhosis are going to be things like portal hypertension. Because when the liver becomes so scarred, right, blood trying to get into the liver cannot do it effectively. So all of that blood that's coming from the liver, the spleen, the stomach, through that portal vein to get into the liver to be filtered, it gets clogged. It gets backed up. And that blood has to go somewhere and it just goes into a blood volume traffic jam. And so we get hypertension inside that portal vein. Well, the portal vein can only tolerate so much pressure before it starts to back up further. And if you pull up a picture of what the vasculature of the stomach looks like, you can see that there are... Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. 
Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. veins coming off of the stomach into the portal vein. So when we have a backup, those are going to continue to engorge the way up past the stomach into the esophagus. Now we're talking about the potential for esophageal varices to develop because the blood cannot get into the liver because it's so scarred. Other major complications are going to be things like peripheral edema and ascites. Okay, they're not making the albumin and albumin is a huge molecule that helps to keep fluid intravascularly. Or maybe they've got hepatic encephalopathy as a result of too much ammonia, right? Because now the liver cannot metabolize ammonia into urea that we then can excrete through our kidneys. Nope, it can't do it. So because it cannot do that, we have a buildup and too much of that makes people have altered mental status. So when the liver fails, it affects every system in the body. From a neurologic standpoint, hepatic encephalopathy, right? Too much ammonia buildup, they'll actually develop what we call asterixes, where when they put their hands out in front of them, they get hand flapping. And if you sitting here listening to this podcast, just put your hands out in front of you with your palms up, like you're going to push on a wall. And then if you just flap your hands, you know, just not like you're waving, but just gently, that's asterixes, right? From a gastrointestinal standpoint, when that liver becomes cirrhotic, they develop nausea, vomiting, changes in bowel habits. They might have a dull abdominal pain. They can develop esophageal and gastric varices. And they develop the esophageal and gastric varices because the liver becomes so scarred that the blood volume trying to go from the stomach on that pathway through the portal vein, it cannot get in. So it backs up and it backflows into the gastric system and into the esophageal system. And that's how we end up with esophageal and gastric varices from an, from a skin standpoint, jaundice. Think back to it's helping to produce bile, that bile bus. If it's not doing that, we are going to have a buildup of bilirubin, which will lead to jaundice. And you're going to see that all over their skin if they're fair skinned. If they're not fair skin and they have a darker skin tone, you're looking at their eyes, their sclera. Those are common areas that we look for that jaundice buildup. So the complications of cirrhosis or AKA scarrosis, because the liver has just become so scarred, the big ones you should take away are portal hypertension. The portal vein becomes narrowed because of the scar tissue, right? Which reduces the blood to the liver and increases the pressure into the connected organs. You're also going to get an enlarged spleen or splenomegaly. And the spleen stores platelets and white blood cells. They get stuck in the spleen because the blood flow can't get out. And this leads to decreased platelets and white blood cell count. But we're also not making coagulation factors, which is why these individuals who have liver cirrhosis often have bleeding problems. You can get esophageal and gastric varices as well. Because of the increased pressure in that portal vein, it dilates the vessels and weakens them, which puts these individuals at risk for potential rupture, esophageal varicea rupture, gastric varicea rupture. And this is life-threatening. And it's life-threatening not just because we're rupturing these 
these viruses, but because also we're not making platelets, we're not storing clotting factors, and so these people are predisposed to bleeding on top of having these ruptured varices. When we talk about varices, right, esophageal varices are com- are complex and often these what we uh, termed in healthcare torturous. They're like, you know, <laughs> torturous being that the way that you see them inside of the pictures because they're enlarged veins at the lower end of the esophagus. And these varices are really fragile and they often, do, and they, they don't tolerate high pressures. And so they bleed really easily in the esophagus. Large varices are more likely to bleed than smaller varices. That stands for a reason, right? That just makes sense. And esophageal varices are actually the ones that are responsible for about 80% of variceal hemorrhages. So esophageal varices are a large contributor to why people are bleeding when they have some sort of liver sclerosis. Again, you get liver cirrhosis, not just from too much alcohol consumption over many years, but also potentially from viral infections, potentially from autoimmune diseases. There's a lot of reasons why people end up with liver cirrhosis. And when we think about those variceal hemorrhages, if 80% of them are coming from the esophagus, that's why oftentimes in nursing schools, we focus on, oh, liver cirrhosis, portal hypertension, look for the esophageal varice. This doesn't mean that they can't also have a gastric varice because those are often located in the upper portion of the stomach and they do account for about 20% of all varices that you may see. So in those patients with cirrhosis, the liver undergoes those structural changes and those changes lead to the obstruction of blood flow in and out of the liver. And ultimately, this results in increased pressures within the liver's circulatory system. Again, we flip back to that portal vein and leading to portal hypertension, which is that increased pressure in the venous system, in the portal circulation, which backflows blood into the spleen. We end up with splenomegaly, which backflows blood into large collateral veins, and we end up with gastric and esophageal varices and ascites, because we're not making albumin, we're not making bile, we're not making coagulation factors. Remember the PDSM. In production, we are making ABCs, albumin, bile, coagulation components, things that help us to stop bleeding. We are detoxifying alcohol and we are detoxifying drugs. If we have liver failure, we cannot detoxify those things. So... How much longer is a medication going to circulate in someone's system if it cannot be filtered through the liver? The answer is much longer. It's going to circulate through the system much longer, which is why you need to understand like even medication half-lives. Because if someone has liver failure and we decide to give them a medication, it is not going to be processed or filtered through the liver in the same time frame or in the same capacity as someone who does not have any sort of liver problems. These are all nursing considerations that you should keep in the back of your mind when you're dealing with patients who may or may not be suffering from this. So as you can see, when you understand the basic premise of what the liver does and you understand the vasculature that is either feeding the liver, being filtered through the liver, or returning away from the liver back to the heart, it stands to reason and it makes more logical sense what the potential complications are going to be. Because in summary, right, cirrhosis is this chronic progressive disease of the liver. And it is a repeated destruction of those hepatic cells that causes and forms the scar tissue, which prevents the liver from doing its basic functions, PDSM functions, and which prevents blood from the portal vein from entering. And as a result, we end up with portal hypertension from that persistent increase in pressure in that portal vein of the blood trying to get into the scarred liver and it just can't. We end up with ascites 
which is that accumulation of fluid in the peritoneal cavity that results from the venous congestion of hepatic capillaries and also from capillary congestion that leads to plasma leaking because we are not making albumin. And we end up with bleeding esophageal varices or gastric varices, which are those fragile, thin-walled, distended veins that become irritated and rupture, especially when it's put under pressure. We end up with coagulation defects because we are not making right vitamin K or clotting factors. We're not storing that. We end up with jaundice because we're not making that bile bus to transport the bilirubin. We end up with portal systemic encephalopathy because that systems can't get into the liver. So these are all things that can occur in liver failure and or cirrhosis when that happens. Now, in terms of what you are going to do as a nurse and what your interventions are going to be, if you're taking care of a patient who has liver cirrhosis, you're going to want to do things like elevating the head of the bed to minimize shortness of breath. Because when they develop ascites, individuals can develop, you know, up to liters upon liters. I think the most I've ever drained off of a patient or assisted with, because I'm not the one actually doing the paracentesis, was 15 liters of fluid that we pulled off of someone who had liver failure. And it was that capillary leaking and the fluid just accumulating in that abdominal cavity. That's really hard to breathe with. So just sit your patients up and maintain that head of bed at an elevated status to help them breathe because that ascites and edema are going to cause some difficulty with that. Provide supplemental vitamins. Provide the vitamins. They're not going to be able to store it. Provide nutrition as needed. They have, they, these oftentimes when they get quite adenomous from the ascites, they're not super hungry. So we want to be able to help increase their nutritional intake, essentially strategize and understand what these patients can consume where they will have a higher cut calorie and nutritionally dense item because they're not going to be hungry and because they might have so much fluid on their abdomen that they cannot tolerate a large meal. So this is where you know those nutritional shakes where it's calorie dense and nutritionally dense, but it's a small volume may come into play. We're going to give them some diuretics to treat the ascites. We're going to monitor their intake and output and their electrolytes. The other big thing that we do for people with liver cirrhosis is we weigh them daily because we know that one liter of fluid is 2.2 pounds, right? So we can easily make quick determinations as to how much fluid they're retaining just by weighing them. And you might also measure their abdominal girth daily. And you do that while they lay flat. You bring the tape measure around the client and take a measurement at the level of the umbilicus. And we, we typically will mark it. And we can kind of determine how much fluid they're retaining based on that as well. We monitor for their level of consciousness to assess for, you know, tremors or delirium because of the buildup of ammonia. We monitor for asterixis, which is that coarse tremor characterized by that rapid non-rhythmic flapping of their hands and their wrists. We will also monitor for gastric problems, right? Think back to those varices. Because of the varices, right, we have to be very cognizant of what their coagulation labs are doing. We need to consider antacids as prescribed because of potential gastric acid buildup, and they're not going to be eating a lot. These are all things that we would want to consider from a nursing perspective if you're taking care of a patient who has liver cirrhosis. 
And I'm sure we could go into way more detail, but again, this is just the nitty gritty variation of liver cirrhosis and what the liver is actually doing. If you've enjoyed this podcast at all, if you've listened to any of my other episodes and you like it, please feel free in the platform that you're listening to, to go ahead and like that. It just lets me know that people are actually listening. If you have a topic that you would be interested in having me review and potentially cover, go ahead and look in my description of this podcast. There's an email address there. Send me an email. Let me know if there's something specific you want me to try to cover, and I'm happy to take a look and and see if that's possible. Otherwise... Go forth and keep on learning.